This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. On this episode of the Commonweal Podcast, we're featuring a trio of great writers. I talk with the novelist, Alice McDermott, about her forays into op-ed writing and the hard but necessary work of being a contrarian Catholic. Our assistant editor, Griffin Olenek, talks with Paul Harding on the 10th anniversary of the publication of his Pulitzer Prize-winning debut novel, Tinkers. Our associate editor, Matthew Sittman, sits down with David Zoll, director of Mockingbird Ministries and editor-in-chief of the Mockingbird blog, to talk about Dave's new book, Seculosity. And... Fitting for this writing-focused installment, assistant editor Regina Munch is here to talk about Commonweal's newest email newsletter, which is all about books. This is the Commonweal Podcast. I'm here with uh, Regina Munch, our assistant editor, and we're here to talk about the new books email newsletter that Regina is in charge of. Thanks for being here, Regina. Tell us a little bit about the newsletter. Um, We have a lot of great writing about books at Commonweal. Uh, Reviews, uh, we're one of the few publications that really devotes a large portion of the magazine to book reviews, book essays, author interviews, some excerpts from books. We enjoy all of that. And that's something we wanted to bring to our readers in there. How frequent is this uh, newsletter? It's monthly. It'll arrive to you on the last Saturday of the month. And what, what do you include in it, Regina? Because, I mean, you're the one in charge of it. And, I, I you know, the first issue has already gone out. And I know I enjoyed reading it. But what, what do you like to include in it? I like to include some releases we're excited for, including something I just picked up from the library this morning, Allie Smith's Spring. Oh, yeah. A lot of people um, talking about that. Very excited about that. And what some of our staff members are reading right now, you were featured, Dominic, in the most recent. uh, Funny, I didn't even notice that, but maybe (laughs) I did. And who else did, I think, uh, who else did you feature in there? Uh, Me Mm -hmm. and our managing editor, Catherine Lucky. Okay, that's great. And that really seems to sort of be like a natural extension of what we're all doing here in the office anyway, right? Very much. We talk about books all the time. Yeah, Uh, kind of almost too much, I think. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's even kind of the case like where we walk in and... See what's on each other's desks and talk at lunch. Mm-hmm. And and one of the other kind of interesting things here too, and I don't know if you know for people who are listening, um, uh, at a, at a, the office of a magazine that a magazine like ours where we do book reviews, we actually get a lot of review copies. We do, and we have a shelf where we. It's one of the first things we do during the day is to see what's on the shelf and see what we can take for ourselves before anyone else gets it. <laughs> yeah, and there is kind of a lot of sort of. It feels like pilfering and sneaking stuff away and trying yes. to get things before somebody else can yes. get to it. Isn't that right? And lending books move around <laughs> each other, people's desks. So now you already talked about the book you got out of, I guess, the New York Public Library this morning. Is that right? Anything else that's kind of on your list personally? A friend just mailed me actually a copy of The Fox Hunt by Muhammad al-Samawi, a story of a refugee from Yemen who had been doing interfaith work Mm -hmm. um, and fled his hometown because of that and then had to had to get out of Yemen entirely yeah. during the war. Now, I should say, too, there's a reason I think uh, Regina is doing the book's newsletter. And if you've read Commonweal before, you've seen that she does quite a lot of reviews on various kinds of books. I enjoy books very much. <laughs> yeah. I'd say you have pretty Catholic tastes in that sense. Yes, Catholic, you could say. Yeah. So, so uh, 
the name of the books – well, I guess we don't have a name for the books newsletter, do we? I wonder if that's something we should think about talking about. think about that. Yeah, so maybe people who are listening out there, if they come up with a good name for, a, for an email newsletter about books, uh, feel free to get yeah, in touch with us. Tweet at us. Yeah, actually, good idea. <laughs> Regina, just say again how frequently the new, how frequent the newsletter is. and, and uh, It's monthly. You'll, you'll get it in your inbox on the last Saturday of the month. Okay, great. Look for the Commonweal Books newsletter in your inbox. Thanks, Regina. Thank you. The Commonweal podcast is supported in part by the generosity of Commonweal's associates. To become part of this giving tradition, log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the donate link. Several weeks ago, I spoke with the novelist Alice McDermott about her February New York Times op-ed piece on the church's response to the sex abuse scandal, Why the Priesthood Needs Women. Our conversation picked up from there, touching on the way she writes about women in her novels, the hard work of being a contrarian Catholic, and the idea of writer as craftsperson rather than writer as theologian or philosopher. How are you today, Alice? I'm great. Thank you. So, of course, I guess I want to start by asking, what made you write this op-ed at this time? Well, the New York Times asked is the simple answer to that question. Um, Actually, uh, one of the editors contacted me, I think it was late August, early September, when the Pennsylvania report came out. And they were on a very close deadline, and they pretty much said, do you have anything to say, and can you say it very quickly? I'm a novelist. I don't write that way. I'm not a journalist. But I did put down some ideas for them. It seemed to me this was a, a glaring exception to any of the resolutions to the crisis in the church, the idea that the church is discriminating against half the population. <laughs> As I say, I just I gave them some idea. This is what I would like to talk about. And we just sort of left it at that. And then I heard from the Times again when the conference in Rome was beginning and they said, you know, if you haven't placed this anywhere else, we'd really like to put it in our pages. So um, that's how it ended up. So how do you feel when you're called on or encouraged to write op-eds? I mean, do you feel a particular call? I know you just said you're a novelist, so you don't normally work on 12-hour turnaround. But I, I mean, do you feel this call to make your opinion known like this? Or do you experience a kind of discomfort or something else? Uh, yes, discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> discomfort and and a kind of reluctance. Um, some of it is probably in my my Long Island DNA that, you know, what are you doing, shooting your mouth off? Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> uh, always crosses my mind. I think we're, we're inundated with far too many opinions. And uh, yeah, no, narrative uh, is, is what I am drawn to as a writer. And fiction is what I believe in as a way to uh, change hearts and minds. So it has to be something extremely compelling. So as a lifelong Catholic, this is not the first time that I've written about the role of women in the church. I don't know how you can be a woman in the church and, um, and miss <laughs> the, um, what I like to call the, the moral era of the all-male clergy. Let me ask, have you heard back or heard anything since this piece appeared 
you know, because obviously you take a very firm and, and direct stance and, and you just use the term moral error there as well. Have you, have you gotten feedback or I guess I'm asking, if, have you gotten sort of oppositional feedback? I'm told uh, I don't read comments, just like I don't read book reviews of my own work. Uh, but I'm told by people who know me who do read the comments that there have been um, a number of conservative voices, you know, bringing out the old tropes, uh, no women at the Last Supper, the uh, magical thinking of the ontological argument that men can't have babies, so women shouldn't be priests. <laughs> um, one of my favorite arguments. <laughs> but I have also heard personally from a large number of mostly women, not exclusively, but mostly women who are going through, I think, what so many Catholics are going through right now. The crisis, the um, trying to decide, do I stay with this corrupt institution? How much patience do I need? And women especially waiting for the church to make some kind of practical difference in the status quo. And so many Catholic women are saying, yes, this is it. Let us in. You guys have had it for a long time and look where you've brought us. Let us have a voice. Let us share in the evolution of the church. A moment ago, you used the word reluctant, and uh, and you've characterized yourself, even in that piece, I think you characterize yourself as a reluctant and often contrarian Catholic. Can you talk about the reluctance a bit? Because, you know, we hear the word reluctance, and it doesn't necessarily equate to rejection. There's a tension implied. And I think uh, there are perhaps many Catholics who feel this way, even if they may not articulate it as such. Yeah, I think the... The mistake I think that many people make when inside and outside any religious tradition, when they think about or talk about faith, is that it's a monolith, that people of faith are constantly faithful. <laughs> um, discussion is over. And that's not my personal experience. It hasn't been my experience uh, out in the world. So yes, there is a kind of reluctance a yearning always um, that I think most human beings share, yearning for meaning, um, a way to understand what our mortal existence means, but never fully sure coming out of the Catholic tradition. Um, this I, I feel the language of the Catholic Church, my faith, um, my belief in Christ, is what was given to me, but not to just lie in state. <laughs> it's given to me as a lifelong project to consider and to complicate, uh, to concentrate, to understand that it is ever changing, that my understanding of it is ever changing, that, you know, our creator um, sort of did a pretty good job with the notion of evolution. And I think in our spiritual lives, we should, we should use that as a role model and always be looking to evolve, to reconsider, uh, to look deeper. Um, so yeah, it's, that's work. Um, that's hard work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's more work than, um, than I often feel like doing. 
I do like the way you use the modifier right before the word Catholic, contrarian Catholic, because I think we're used to hearing a lot of other modifiers, whether it's cafeteria or conservative or traditional or whatever. And I I guess I kind of want to tease this out a little about how else you feel contrarian as a Catholic. What makes a contrarian Catholic? Well, again, I think it's it's that not that full acceptance of rules um, made by men <laughs> and and passed down from on high. There's a wonderful theologian, Father Himes, who teaches up at Boston College, and I remember him addressing the parents of new students when my older son began at BC, and he said in this lovely way that if you were to fly over any Catholic university, the sound that should arise out of the campus should be the sound of people saying, yes, but. And I think that that there is no conversation, there is no exchange, there's no growth um, without that constant yes, but. And I think Catholics sometimes are afraid of that. If I, if I ask a question, am I um, unfaithful? Am I doubting Thomas? Um, rather than asking the questions, then brings me deeper into meaning. And often um, contradictions arrive, um, arise. That, that doesn't sound right. Yes, but it doesn't sound quite right. I want to turn a little more specifically to some of your fiction now. And I want to go back to your, well, I guess it's your most recent novel, the 2017 novel, The Ninth Hour. And one of your main characters uh, is a sister saint savior. And I want to read the description you gave to her. And it goes like this. In her 47 years of living in this city, sister had collected any number of acquaintances who could help surmount the many rules and regulations church rules and city rules and what sister miriam called the rules of polite society rules that complicated the lives of women catholic women in particular and poor women in general now uh, that description the moment that's depicted here takes place a century or so ago what was your aim in creating just this kind of woman in this novel what did what did you want to get across to readers Oh, I don't think of it as um, getting things across to readers. Um, again, that's I, I, editorials are not my <laughs> my stock and trade. So I think of it more as simply bringing a character to the page, and as her author trying to understand who she is in the context of her own life, in the context of the times. In some ways. It's it's been interesting of late because that those very words um, have been quoted back to me <laughs> in the the present dilemma that the uh, Catholic women find themselves in. As a matter of fact, I not too long ago was talking talking with a group of um, Mercy nuns, and they almost said word for word uh, how they have spent their careers working around the unreasonable restrictions that the male clergy has, has made them suffer with um, in taking care of women and taking care of families. So uh, really, my intention was simply to introduce this, this nun, this uh, religious woman with this complex spiritual life, who also is, as many women are, and especially nursing sisters in that time and place, people who, who are on the ground 
that are dealing with their fellow sufferers, their fellow human beings, in a minute-by-minute daily practical way, Um, not in theory, but in on-the-street practice. And how do you manage that when so many of the uh, rules and regulations, rules of polite society, (laughs) seem to be working against what's needed? You dedicate that novel to a sister, Mary Rose, and I'm, I'm wondering if you're able to tell us who she is or was and what about her made you memorialize her in this way? Yeah. You know, when I, when I began writing The Ninth Hour, um, I did not think I was entering into a book about nuns. <laughs> I really thought Sister St. Savior was, was going to be the sole religious woman in the book, and I would go off and, and turn my attention elsewhere. But she did arrive, and it so often happened at that time. Nuns seldom traveled singly, um, and she had soon invited two more sisters uh, into the novel, and I was intrigued by them. As I wrote, I realized that much of my intrigue uh, probably came out of my own experience. My mother lived in Brooklyn and was raised by uh, her, her widowed aunt who had four children of her own. And Sister Mary Rose was a nursing sister, the Congregation of the Infant Jesus, who was just always there helping a widowed uh, working woman with a pack of children. And I have a very vague memory of her myself. She died when I was young. But as I wrote the book um, and began to investigate who these nursing sisters were, how many of them were um, around, what they did, I realized how many of my mother and my aunt's stories of their childhood included Sister Mary Rose. And they were always just charming. She had a great sense of humor. She was Irish, um, but she was also always there. Um, If um, my grandmother was sick or if one of the kids was sick and my grandmother had to go to work, uh, she would be there. If the that their older brother wasn't acting the way he should, she was there. So it was really as I wrote the novel that I felt something of the importance of what up until that time had just been sort of an anecdotal memory on my mother's part. You mentioned the the Brooklyn that's in, in your past and your previous novel, I think it came out in 2013, which was called Someone. I believe is mostly set in Brooklyn. Is that is that right? And uh, I want to talk a little bit about it. It's kind of a, a lengthy question, so just if you don't mind bearing with me, hopefully the listeners will as well. Um, in someone, I recall how the desire for hope pervades the pages, and this is something I noticed when I read it too. That the title of the book comes up as an answer whenever a character asks, "Who will love me?" Or who will be there when I wake up in the dark? Or who will know when I fall? You know, the the answer is someone. Yet the vagueness of that response, someone, uh, even though it's comforting, is not entirely reassuring, at least to me. And again, I know you don't try to elicit specific reactions from readers, but I guess I'm wondering if you could just talk about why that answer, someone, was the answer you chose to put in the words of some of those characters. Yeah, I think, um, as you say, the the response comes in at different points um, and sometimes in in different, uh, somewhat different context. Um, 
But I guess one of the important things that, about that novel is the, the entire novel is told from the point of view of this woman whose life more or less spans the 20th century. And she's unremarkable in every way. Um, she's quiet, um, not particularly bright, not particularly talented, you know, coming of age at a time um, when women's choices were uh, limited, but with a very complex and, and sort of rich interior life. And I think part of uh, what I was trying to get at is maybe goes back to what we were saying initially not so much about certainty, not so much. She's, and she's Catholic and she has a brother who even uh, becomes a priest. Um, so it's, it's, it's not so much about the certainty of the faith that she is given at her birth. It's more about the yearning. It's more about the way even the faith itself and the language of the faith doesn't quite get at, doesn't quite say what is at the heart of her existence. And, and that is that, that yearning, that longing for comfort, um, that longing for some sense of safety that the church addresses and her faith addresses, but not fully. And, and I think it has to be somewhat nebulous. She would be an entirely different character if she could articulate it uh, beyond that single, yes, someone. There's something I want. There's something more, even in happiness, even when things go well, certainly when things don't go well, certainly when faced with the loss of a, a loved one. What is it we want? And I think that's to to give it any uh, more detail, to, to to have her think any more deeply would I think maybe undermine, and again not to not to dismiss the way her faith addresses that yearning, but to also leave open the reality that even her faith, which she does not question, which addresses it doesn't satisfy, not fully. Somehow it goes beyond language. Just hearing you talk about a couple of these characters in, in a couple of your novels, it makes me wonder. You seem very, for lack of a better word, attached to them. And I'm wondering if you have a particular favorite or some uh, of your characters across your, your body of work who are still with you in that way, who still feel close to you somehow. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think of, um, again, it's the way Sister St. Savior came into the ninth hour um, and, and the other nuns followed. I think maybe this is, is my uh, writer as craftsperson rather than writer as theologian or philosopher <laughs> attitude. You know, I think of characters so much a part of everything else in the novel that characters aren't there first and then I try to find the language for them or um, plot is there and then I try to find the characters who can fit into the plot. For me, it's everything is so uh, bound up together, character and place and language and then story and then plot so that I, 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 mean, I can talk about them, <laughs> you know, outside the novel, but they really come into existence for me in the composition. And when the composition is complete, when I find the last sentence, they don't exist outside of that. 
this uh, it might make a kind of an interesting segue to some other things I wanted to take up with you. And a few years ago, you wrote a piece for the Boston College magazine with the kind of weighty theme, uh, storytelling and the sacramental imagination. I think even in that essay, you might have uh, expressed a little, I don't know if discomfort's the right word again, but just sort of, I don't think you necessarily thought of yourself as taking on an essay with this kind of weighty thematic characteristic. But if I, I do want to maybe read a couple quotes back to you because they've stayed with me since I read that essay, in part too, because you sort of mentioned Flannery O'Connor in an interesting way. Um, Personally, I am in no way certain that the divine light shines through the things of this world. The Jesuit notion of God in all things is marvelous, but it takes a faith I don't have to keep another notion, one we call wishful thinking, from snapping at its heels. I approach my faith with none of O'Connor's breathtaking certainty. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you're saying there. I think about, uh, as so many of us are aware, the um, you know the famous uh, anecdote about Flannery O'Connor and Mary McCarthy, Mary McCarthy saying that the Eucharist is a marvelous metaphor and Flannery shouting out after being silent through the whole dinner, well, if it's a metaphor to hell with it. <laughs> um, I love that too. Um, but I, I, I find myself somewhere in the middle between Mary McCarthy and, and Flannery O'Connor in um, if I needed to place myself at that, at that dinner party. Maybe it's in some ways... Um, my argument would be, yes, it is a metaphor, but a metaphor is is more wonderful than most of us understand. It's not simply um, wordplay, um, that the, the metaphorical makes real. But um, on the other hand, transubstantiation is still something that I understand, but boy, I don't want to have to defend it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all think that, especially at that specific moment, too, when we're witnessing it and experiencing it at the Mass. Let me uh, also read back something from the same essay, and it may may bring this conversation sort of full circle. Uh, You write, in my own experience, meaningless is often as good an explanation for the things of this world as is meaning. In matters of faith, I am aware of wordplay and disingenuousness and outdated dogma, not to mention the role that fear and confusion, sentimentality, and shallow thinking can play when we confront our mortality. And if you just, maybe uh, we can finish our conversation with you just talking about that a little. Yes, well, I, I guess it does bring us right back to the um, the whole notion of yes, but. And, you know, I feel that doubt enlivens faith. I think that we would not be blessed with these complex minds of ours, fully capable of, of, of great devotion and great cynicism, <laughs> the active imaginations, um, able to entertain two opposing ideas at the same time. I, I think all the those really the the talents um, that we have been given as thinking beings can be put to very good use in matters of faith and should be. And again, it brings me back to the idea that, you know, an institution like the Catholic Church, although um, this is true in too many cases these days, Although many of us look back in fondness to what we thought was a simpler and more peaceful time 
in the Catholic Church, which in reality never existed. <laughs> we don't have to make the Catholic Church great again. <laughs> you know? um, I think that, you know, that sense of um, constantly working at faith, at understanding, at questioning our existence, questioning the meaning, questioning the answers that we are given regarding um, what life means, what death means, to be constantly applying our imagination and our skepticism and our hopes and our aspirations and our language, which is lovely but also often fails us, uh, to apply all those things to the questions that are involved with faith is the way our faith evolves with you know into something sure and more complex and probably more astonishing um, in its um, beauty. Alice McDermott, thank you for being with us here today on the Commonwealth Podcast. Thank you, Dominic. Alice McDermott's op-ed, Why the Priesthood Needs Women, originally appeared in February and can be found on the New York Times website. Commonweal is the leading independent Catholic journal of public affairs, religion, literature, and the arts. We offer a number of subscription options. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the subscribe link. Paul Harding's debut novel, Tinkers, was rejected by a raft of publishers before Bellevue Literary Press published it in 2009, and then it went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. On the 10th anniversary of Tinkers, Paul talks with assistant editor Griffin Olenek about this small meditative novel, as well as Marilyn Robinson, the Bible commentary of John Calvin, and the profundity of theologian Karl Barth. Paul Harding, thank you so much for coming on the Commonweal podcast. We're so glad to have you here. Oh, it's my, my pleasure. And we're here today to talk about your Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Tinkers, which is a wonderfully idiosyncratic book with an idiosyncratic publication history. I was thinking and I thought we might call it, we might call it one of the most uh, popular and successful underground novels ever. I was wondering, could you just say a few words uh, in brief what it's about and how it came to be published? Sure. Yeah. Um, in a nutshell, I would say that it is based on the sort of old family stories that my maternal grandfather used to tell me and my brother and my cousins about his life growing up, uh, very impoverished in Maine during the, the, the 30s, the 20s and the 30s. Um, and when he passed away, I just, as a as a means of sort of thinking about him and sort of communing with him, I started writing some of those memories, you know, so, some of those memories down. And they're really about a page of, you know, of, of factual material. I just started taking each of the facts that I remembered and just building up imaginary versions of them. It's just a story about um, a, a family in, in, in northern Maine um, in, the, in the 20s. Could you say a bit about how the book came to be, how you went about writing it? Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I you know, that, that there are these sort of you know handful of sort of load-bearing dramatic premises that were based in fact, but there weren't many of them. So I just felt like I started with the sort of the grain or the germ of each one of those facts, and then just started to sort of spiral out from each one, imagining and starting to elaborate 
on fictional versions of these facts um, or fictional elaborations of them. And I just kept working them up. I guess, you know, there's a half dozen of them or something until they started to overlap with one another and become implicated uh, one with the other. But it was also a way of sort of aesthetically disciplining myself to uh, unfold the story from within, from the more, more of an experiential uh, structure. And I did, I just, I just kept imagining my way deeper and deeper into these people's lives. And I, I thought of it as kind of unlineated lyric poetry. Um, you know, very, I'm into the transcendentalists and I'm into metaphysics and all this sort of stuff. So I really wanted it to be a kind of you know, inward, uh, you know, kind of meditative book that was deeply based in the in the uh, character's consciousness. But I, I know it, it's so straightforward. And when you when I think, oh, it's a, about a guy on his deathbed and he's thinking about his father, I think, boy, that would not make a very good Hollywood elevator pitch. You know, <laughs> but yeah. Could you say a bit about your aesthetic discipline? How is it that you write, and how is it that you went about composing the novel? Well, I'm, I would say that I'm aesthetically, I am kind of a phenomenologist, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's nothing more valuable than experience, the experience of being conscious, the experience of experiencing yourself as a self. And so perception is something I'm interested in. And so just, just paying the closest, most attentive um, uh, attention to um, what it's just like to be a perceiving person um, and just and just almost running experience almost like prismatically through each character's consciousness and just seeing how it sort of refracts through each character and you just get these different palettes and different atmospheres and you know I, I think of it I think of it in terms of music. I think of it in terms of all sorts of just color and texture. Yeah. But it's all being run through a person. So whatever these angles of refraction or different colors, as it were, that you get as they go through the character's minds ends up constituting character itself. Interesting. So it's not that we need to know. It's not we need to know facts about a person. And in fact, there's that beautiful scene where uh, George, the main character, tries to record the details of his life in a tape recorder. Right. And it's so prosaic and his his life, you know, he has trouble getting to the interesting bits. And you're, so what you're saying is that's not what a person is. It's rather, what is the perceiving subject? How does that person interact with the world? Right, right, exactly. And I think it's something that it's, so it's aesthetics, but then your aesthetics, to me, my aesthetics are indistinguishable from my values and my morals. And you, and so I, you know, so the, just even the idea of privileging the value, where does value lie of what does value consist? It consists in human experience. You know, we are, it's that idea that Re, the way you would express it theologically is it's your God-given humanity. So there's nothing more um, pressing, you know, more demanding of your attention in moral and aesthetic ways than considering this human experience and, and placing the ultimate value on that. Hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, so you mentioned theology, and I know that you're you're deeply interested in theology. As was one of your teachers uh, at Iowa, Marilyn Robinson, who's written a beautiful. Right. A uh, new introduction or introduction to the 10th anniversary uh, edition of Tinkers. Can you talk about who are your favorite theologians and what do you take from them? I would have to say, I mean, I started off reading Calvin, John Calvin, partly 
because of my friendship with Marilyn Robinson. And so I read Calvin's Institutes and started reading all of his Bible commentary. I mean, you could never get through it. There's it's shelves of it. But over the years, I would say that my the, the, the theologian with whom I've had the, you know, the deepest and on you know consistent and ongoing relationship is Karl Barth this reformed protestant theologian and he has this you know church dogmatics that in itself is, is like 15,000 pages or something you know you know just the you know, densely densely argued and observed you know biblical exegesis but it really is just a model of thinking and eloquence and elegance and just profundity. And I'm actually, I'm getting toward the end of it. I'm starting to wonder what I'm going to do. When well, I'm congratulations. <laughs> I, might, I might have to, I, I'll probably just start again. <laughs> yeah. Get a clean copy. Of my, I've written many more hundreds of pages of marginalia about Karl Barth than I've written fiction. But yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's cosmology and cosmology is narrative and narrative has to do with being in time. And it's just very consistent with, with art, with physics, with theology, with philosophy. Um, so I just, and science too. And, you know, so I just find it just endlessly engrossing. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love about the characters in Tinkers is their expansiveness and just the range of subjects that are covered. Everything from clock manufacturing to, you know, the reflection of the light on ponds and trees to, you know, uh, advertising copy. And there's this intellectual expansiveness that comes through in the novel um, that reminds me a lot of the Bible. And I know the Bible is one of your favorite things to read. I'm wondering if you could you could speak a bit about that between uh, the similarities between the novel Tinkers, your own thinking, and the prose of the Bible. Sure. Well, I mean, it's all... To me, the you know the Bible is, and it's it's interesting because I've taught the Bible now. I'm going to teach it again next next spring. You know, I think it's a misnomer when you see it in in um, you know college course catalogs that you know the Bible as literature. I think the Bible is literature. You know, there's no <laughs> that it it works and it embodies and expresses and releases its truths according to aesthetics narrative. It was not to degrade. You know the idea that it's sacred, or that it's holy. It's to say, it's to elevate this idea of the, you know, of what narrative is, and you know that it's somehow essential to our human form and and life. And I, I mean, when you when you look at when you look at the Bible, it's just an incredible anthology of all sorts of different genres of writing. It's a model of a narrative economy and concision and beauty as well as cosmology and ethics and all that sort of stuff. And it is, I mean, just before you even get into any kind of denominational or religious questions, it is the headwater for Western art. And so as you read the Bible and you follow it, I mean, I, I really ended up being interested in it in terms of um, its, uh, its translation into English. Um, the 16th century translations done by William Tyndall, who practically, I mean, this is an exaggeration for the purposes of conversation, but he practically invented modern literary English in the course of translating the Bible from the original Hebrew and Greek. Uh, if you if you if you read his translations, you hear Shakespeare. Yeah, and it was it was a daring move for him to make, right? Translating the Bible into English. Yeah, he was burned at the stake for it. You know, he's, yeah, <laughs> and they swiped his translations and turned them into the King James version. But 
um, uh, you know, and Shakespeare would have read Tyndall's translations, not the not the King James version. The King James version of the Bible came out in 1611, which is the year that Shakespeare's last play was written. So, I mean, you can so it's it's just watching the language grow up, uh, you know, uh, becoming raising the level of English to the level where it can uh, accommodate the beauty and the depth and the complexity of the Bible. Once you know, once you've read the Bible and thought about it, uh, you know, uh, and then you look at practically any other Western literature, and in my case, it's particularly it's Shakespeare, it's Melville, Faulkner, all the, you know, um, even you know Emily Dickinson, all these people, it's there, it's the common it's the narrative or it's 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 the narrative against which they are or in the context of which they are shaping their own narratives so i just remember the first time i after i'd really studied the bible and thought um, you know become more familiar with it i just remember the first time i went back and reread moby dick went back and reread go down moses um you know went back and i'm i'm teaching a graduate seminar in shakespeare this semester there, there's barely a line of Shakespeare that is not riffing on and uh, it's a refracting kind of uh, the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments or, you know, different biblical narratives and plots and all that. So it's just it's just uh, to me, like I said, it's the sort of it's the it's the source for Western art. Yeah. And you're so interested in uh, I mean, as a writer, as a teacher, you're so interested in language and the ways that it. Uh, as you're mentioning, runs around and refracts and gives new life. What are some other, uh, I guess we call them works from the from the classical tradition in English. What are some historical works that you're finding nourishment in? I'm, um, you know, up to my teeth in Shakespeare. That's great. That's a good. <laughs> so that leads to I've been reading Gower. You know, uh, I think it's John Gower, who is the 14th century poet who was sort of a, uh, he, he wrote poetry advising Richard II and Henry IV. I've been reading John Fox's Acts and Monuments. They go along with, um, they go along with, with, with Shakespeare very well. I'm kind of a dictionary junkie. I have, I have a, I have a, I have a, um, I have a uh, I have, you know, uh, that full 20 volume set of the Oxford English Dictionary. And I read through that. And it's astonishing how much of it just comes from Shakespeare and a handful of, you know, Tyndall, Shakespeare, you know, a handful of those of those writers. I I guess also that I spend a lot of time rereading things. So I spend a lot of time reading and rereading, for example, um, Emerson's sermons. Not a lot of people read them. They're not in print anymore, but there's a four volume set of them. Um, And it's astonishing to watch him working out in a much more scriptural context those, uh, you know, the, the early, earliest versions of the ideas that then eventually became, you know, the Divinity School Address and all these other astonishing essays that he wrote. And I love the fact that his essays don't work as arguments. They are, they're homiletical, you know, they're, they're like, aesthetic, yeah, and they're very, in, you know, the, the way that they inspire. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always reading or rereading or reading in Moby Dick and I'm always rereading Faulkner and I'm always reading Wallace Stevens and and, and Emily Dickinson, all, you know, all that all, all, all that crew. 
So this idea, you know, I very much had this idea that I'm writing a tradition, you know, it's a chosen tradition. And, and I wanted to find a way to convert the, as it were, you know, the anxiety of influence into the privilege and the luxury and the pleasure of influence. And so when I, you know, when I'm writing, when I was working on Tinkers, when I was working on my latest novel, and I'm, I really am in conversation with all those, all those books. And so as you're making your own art, you're thinking about how these, all these other, you know, I think of Melville and Shakespeare and as my great uncles and great aunts, you know, with whom I'm in conversation. But there's this idea that we keep making metaphors. And even though we all, every human metaphor will eventually fail, but that stop us from making them, you know? Yeah, we've got this, uh, well, you know, theology, so I'm sure you're familiar with the term. We've got this duty you know, the difference between the cataphatic and the apophatic, but we've got this duty to, to uh, go on finding metaphors. We're always, it's what I love about tinkers is uh, literally the metaphor of the tinker, the person who's bending things together, taking them apart, seeing how they work. That's what you're doing as a, as a writer, but it's also what the characters are doing. And we're, yeah, we're watching them struggle but we realize that that's what we're doing too in life. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's what the that's what art should do is to me it's that idea of it being experiential it means that uh, I'm not trying to explain anything with any of my art. I'm trying to portray experience and simply describe it. You know, I'm making just portraiture of what it's literally what it's like to be a human being. And so the the deepest effect that I want for my reader is that of recognition, mm. mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that experience you have when you, when you finish a, you know, a book or a chapter or even a, you know, a well done sentence and you just immediately, you know, have that simultaneous experience of, wow, that's absolutely true. I've always known it was true, but I've never seen anybody put it into words before. Mm-hmm. Almost like it's chosen me to be put into words. Like yeah, I- yeah, exactly, exactly. And so you feel, you know, it sort of pre- precipitates through you. And in this case, it precipitates through me, you know, as an author, through the English language, you know, which, again, that loops back into it's good to be going through the Oxford English Dictionary and Shakespeare and understanding the history and the richness of the words that you're using because you can really get them to resonate you know in that deeper way i mean another thing that i love about melville is uh well uh, moby dick in particular i love how it's uh, you know he's riffing on shakespeare because you know ahab is this tyrannical king who's made all the servants you know swear an oath to a to you know to a, a, a bad undertaking um and and I, but I one of the things I love about Melville too is how Moby Dick is it demonstrates the the capacity of that theological tradition to uh, it accommodates doubt in faith and belief. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's like, and it's, I think it's to me, I think of it as that kind of Pauline sort of. You know, we 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 go from faith to faith, which I always take as the first presumption of good faith is that it will fail. Right. <laughs> right. And that, and that loops back into what we were just talking about, which is that's why you have to constantly be thinking about it and uh, and fiddling with it and tinkering with it. And, and it's fully participatory. Like there, you have an obligation to be active about that. You know, as Bart would say, we are ordained to, to you know, and what we are, th- that to which we are, are ordained is fellowship. There's, uh, I mean, 
sorry, that's so that's wonderful. <laughs> um, that's why I spend all my time, you know, like just browsing around in this stuff because every every corner you take, you you just you stumble on another just absolutely beautiful idea. So, what gives you that? I almost want to call it fearlessness, but or that courage to go on seeking, uh, to go on digging through and rooting down in the English language. It's not something that many people do. And it's, it's something that it comes through in your writing, uh, but, but even just in talking to you. Do you have to give yourself permission to do it? How do you find yourself? It's funny because not anymore, because I've hit momentum, you know, um, and then it turns into like this kind of, it's almost like a feedback loop or whatever like everything i dredge up is it's just more of this you know treasure and so it's just a self-reinforcing kind of thing and it also too is like it's not goal oriented i mean it really is what we've been talking about it's just participatory it's just what i it's literally what i want my brain to be filled with as much as possible so is that something that your students have trouble with i'm curious i used to be a teacher myself i know that you know you're very actively involved in your students writing lives um do they struggle with let's call it unadulterated experience or how do they think about these issues well I mean, in some ways, what I find is that they they haven't thought about it a lot of times, or they haven't allowed themselves to think about it because of one version or degree or another of that kind of self consciousness we've talked about. Yeah, a lot of times they're they're already thinking about like the publishing world and what editors want and what agents want, oh. and everything is just they're consulting external values. Yeah, and to be material values. And so I just don't talk about any of that stuff in my classes. I talk about I talk about the same subjects and in the same way that you and I are discussing them right now. And what I find is that most of the students absolutely love that and are and are deeply grateful. I mean, you know, no, I mean deeply grateful to have what what are some of their deepest impulses and intuitions just authenticated and confirmed and you know then they're in, encouraged in that you know i mean i've been I, I i think my my you know proposals for teaching shakespeare the way i teach it and i'm going to teach the old testament next spring semester I think a lot of people were sort of skeptical that there was any demand for it and it just turns out that every every week in the shakespeare class i've been teaching you know more and more people show up and it's and it's not because i'm so great you know, it's just because i just i'm i'm just i think i'm it's that idea that I'm not, um, and I think this is true of just teaching in general, which is your best teachers don't so much tell you stuff or data that you don't already know. They just, they show you things from angles you haven't thought about them from before. And so it's more a matter of just um, um, activating recognition of things you already know, but for whatever reason are habituated into not thinking about, or you don't let yourself perceive them or, you know, whatever, but they're there. And when you see them, you think, oh, I, wow, I, I already knew that. Yeah. Or they, they guide you somewhere to a, a field, like a fertile field that you were unaware of. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, well, we're running short on time. <laughs> yeah, I know. We get, I feel like we're just under sale, too. Isn't that funny how these <laughs> good conversation works? So I love, Paul, your, the way that you talk about phenomenology, the way that you talk about self-consciousness versus self-awareness. And as I was reading Tinker's, I noticed that 
this is precisely the thing that many of the characters are able to transcend is this kind of inward looking uh, selfishness. And what struck me as I was reading was that you've got um, in your writing a, a deep kind of attentiveness to reality uh, that I might even call reverence or religious or spiritual reverence. I want to know what sorts of things do you revere wh- and wh- what's necessary for, for entering into the mindset of reverence? Well, I, I mean, I think I revere the human soul. <laughs> I think that there's nothing more value than the you know valuable than the human soul and and that is you know our access to that is through our consciousness and so attentiveness to consciousness and to experience cultivates that reverence and i would just say that you know introspection i mean it's sort of one of those beautiful it seems like a paradox but then it turns into this more elegant very beautiful kind of idea that you know that introspection the more thoughtful you are in terms of yourself, just internal, you know, just thoughtful of your own experience, the more likely I think you are then when you, you know, lift your eyes back up and see another human being, you think that person is doing, is going through the same thing I am. So they are as valuable as I am, you know? I mean, that's one of the things I love about that, the, uh, the theological idea that, you know, I find in Bart, or, or I found it articulated in Karl Bart, but it's really, you know, it's 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 common to the common to the you know, Judeo-Christian, which is the idea that the transcendent God, you know, demonstrated His transcendence by becoming imminent, by becoming a person, but then the hallmark of His personhood was selflessness, and that I the old I and thou, right? You know, the idea that yeah. you know that Martin Luther, yeah, yeah, that you that you activate your own humanity to the extent that you lend it to to making other people's humanity better and to bearing witness to their humanity, you know? And so it's all of a piece to me. Mm, that's really beautiful. It reminds me of the psalmist. Uh. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I just, that's, I mean, we, whatever, we could go on and on about, you know, but I've been thinking about all the, all the psalms that um that have to do with like being up late at night fretting (laughs) counting all of your bones yeah yeah and just worrying about all this sort of stuff in these in the most beautiful lyrical way yeah well paul thank you so much for discussing not only your novel tinkers but uh everything under the sun which is exactly how tinkers is i should say for our listeners four (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it's great to talk to you Have a favorite article you've read from a recent issue? Let us know and join the conversation online on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine, on Twitter at CommonwealthMag, and on Instagram. David Zoll's new book is Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. He came by the office to talk about the book with our associate editor, Matthew Sitman, and how our search for enoughness is playing out in our relationships to food, parenting, and technology. In other words, about the way we live now. Welcome, Dave. Oh, thank you, Matt. (laughs) Thanks for being here. I I was thinking before this interview, it must be just about a decade I've known you. I moved to Charlottesville in 2008. And I moved 2010. Yeah, and I 
So yeah, and we're, here we are. 2019. <laughs> Did you ever think this is where you'd end up? Across across the table from me in Morningside Heights is an editor of the Catholic Magazine. I think uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here, and we're going to talk about your book, Seculosity, subtitled "How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion, and What to Do About It." So I guess. To begin with, since our readers probably won't have – or our listeners won't have read this book yet. And if they do, that's amazing. They're the real fans. <laughs> You're incredible. <laughs> right. We love you. <laughs> What's your basic argument? Well, yeah, the basic argument is that as conventional religion has declined, that we've just sort of filled that void, however you want to put it. And every time you you create some sort of metaphor, it sounds a little – uh, funky, but right. there's been just all sorts of I would just call them replacement religions that have uh, everyday activities that have taken on like an existential significance in people's right. lives. And one of the instead of talking about this in terms of idolatry, which would be some of the, I think the traditional language for mm-hmm. talking about this, I was really trying to write about righteousness and how mm-hmm. we have sort of new and and fluctuating forms of righteousness that operate religiously or at least very similarly to religious concepts of righteousness in people's lives that – and so I've I've spent 10 years sort of observing this and saying, hey, does anyone – you know, putting my hand up, it's like, anyone notice how this feels like (laughs) we're in like a really bad church all the time? Like everyone's – there's heretics and and people are – in a way, what you're saying is that one story you could tell about the world we live in now is that it's a, it's a very secular world. Mm. And what you're saying is in a way that's not exactly true. Yeah. Um, I mean you, you play the word – the term seculosity you come up with in the book is kind of a, a mix of secular and religiosity, mm-hmm. right? And at one point in the – early in the book, you call it religion that's directed horizontally. Yes. But – but in other words, to talk – to focus on the, the fact that we live in a kind of secular society and traditional religion has declined, in a way what you're saying is that misses a big piece of the way we live now, which is that this kind of religious impulse is directed towards any number of aspects of our lives from, as you say, romance, parenting, technology, work. So maybe you could give an example of how this plays out, this, this horizontally directed – religious impulse like what do you mean by like like you just described that you you looked around and you you've been like doesn't it feel like we're in church all the time like what do you mean by that what's an example yeah well i mean we just recently had that big scandal with the college admissions process and in right. which you saw that it wasn't just students who were you know that we're told are constantly climbing this ladder uh, to success and to sort of privilege mm-hmm. and what have you, in which their sort of value is um, kind of claimed. But you have parents who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever that the, there's this sticker on the back of the car windshield, at least for a certain section of kind of, uh, you know, upper middle class America, that is a real measure of righteousness, right. I think. And that's why it's the parents, I think, would be led to want to sort of commit a felony in order to get that status is the is the wrong word i think mm-hmm. because although it, it's a it's a good word but i would say it's it's as much of that as righteousness because you're also i think for a lot of parents who are like this and i this is the world in which i live and breathe living in charlottesville i think people are also working so hard 
and there's so many double careers mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of guilt around that. Um, I think that this is one way that affluent parents feel they can make it up to their child and sort of provide yeah. for their child. Mm -hmm. So when I say that and it, it does have a sense of which in parenting has become you not only – you're looking to your child for – your enoughness is sort of the, the the slightly flaky term, but you know I think a valuable term that I use in the book. You're looking to them for um, you know validation. You're looking for them actually for I, I think some kind of functional um, salvation even mm -hmm. because you're looking to your child for immortality. They're your legacy right. in the world, and like mm -hmm. if they sort of demote you and your family in some way, then you're condemned. Mm -hmm. And so this is a work of translation, of course. I mean the uh, parenting is one, just one example of many. I think you could see it in food and the drive for purity in terms right. of how things are sourced and the amount of moralism and shame and guilt mm -hmm. people feel around food. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was bad. I had a brownie. I was good. I had a salad. I, I joke that like I think the last time most people used the word cheat – was in reference to a diet, <laughs> yeah. And these are moral uh -huh. terms. And a lot other other critics have said that we sort of food now kind of occupies the sort of spiritual uh, energy of the educated class, or or mm -hmm. what the, the place that art used to occupy, right? And even in our leisure, you make the point in the book that where our leisure is actually busy, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I think leisure has been co-opted by – in a lot of ways, not in every way, but by productivity concerns. And so right. like if you want to sell sleep to people in America, which is the ultimate act of leisure, right. you have to sell them on the fact that it will help them work better and make them right. more efficient. Yeah. And there's something – you know, play. The only way to, to tell – to get schools to offer more recess time is to say that uh, the kids will get better grades instead right. of – the kids will maybe have a good time, for <laughs> right. example, or <laughs> just not, have fun. not yeah, just yeah. have fun and like <laughs> there's this beautiful world outside. Yeah, yeah. So really you're, the book sort of describes a, a culture that whether it's parenting or whether it's the food we eat or our relationship to technology, um, at one point you describe it as a very merciless place. Mm. So what, what's your – I mean you work, you work at a church – you minister to people. If what you've described is true, how do you see it playing out in people's actual lives? Not what they're doing, but like what's the emotional toll of living in the world that you describe in this book where everything's about performance, everything's kind of anxiety driven, everyone's worried about living up to some standard or ideal. I, I actually kind of liked your term enoughness. Right. What's, what's like the emotional fallout from this? Well, I mean – in, in, in a lot of ways, I think the book is my attempt to explain from from with my set of experiences and my vantage point why it is we seem to be more increasingly lonely, anxious, divided, exhausted. All of the measures of mental health, you know, deaths of despair um, right. that, that seem to be just kind of steadily increasing. Opioid crisis. Opioid crisis is not and, – and, you know, there are physiological elements right, to this. Right, sure, sure, yeah. But I think that there is a profound sense of unease that something about the way we're living right now isn't really working. And I, and I do think that it has to do with this mercilessness, this, this nonstop demand to assert your enoughness in a way that it's like I, – I'd say that we've, we've sort of – jettisoned a lot of the 
uh, or we, we've kept all of the demand and the hardship and the, you know, the, the piety of old-time religion, but none of the mercy, <laughs> none of the absolution, none right. of the confession, none of right. the sacraments. Right. And so uh, you have a very – you have this enormous pressure that builds up mm-hmm. that I think is, has nowhere to go. And I think right. it makes people very sad. Why is that? Like, like if we live in such a brutal, unforgiving, merciless culture, why aren't sort of the pews filled with people hungering for <laughs> grace and mercy and solace? Uh, well, I think a lot of churches – I wrote a chapter in there called Jesus Land and I think a mm-hmm. lot of at least sort of the bastardized form of Protestant Christianity in the West has um, co-opted. It seems a lot more – it functions a lot more like these sort of secular proxies. It, it has become a purely behavior-driven, very little kind of a three strikes and you're out kind of uh, legalism is, is maybe the broad term. But it, it has – it doesn't seem to evoke grace. It, that's not – comfort is not what people think of when they think of the, you know, capital C Christianity in America. Mm-hmm. And – but yes, I think I think that some of the I think of some of the stuff that Charles Taylor talks about in his book about the conditions of belief having shifted, and um, there's a slight um, indifference to larger questions. There's also I think a, a constant distraction with phones that allows a person never to really pause and think about anything, even if even if what they're really distracting themselves is from is their sense of not enoughness. Mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty complex thing, but I will say that I have observed plenty of churches where grace and forgiveness and absolution are front and center that are thriving, that do yeah. have a lot of people in them, yeah. and people that would never have thought that they'd be there. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I think you know, AA is thriving. Um, not everything. I think so, so I think there's – it's partly PR. It's partly something about the institutional church, which I think uh, gets very, very nervous about um, – Really going the, all the way mm-hmm. with uh, with God's grace, and I think it's there's a, there's a baseline suspicion that people aren't even realizing the amount of assumptions they're bringing to the questions. So yeah. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I do think one thing I tell people is that uh, I mean, obviously, the last not quite year since last summer, the the kind of reemergence of the Catholic sex abuse crisis has kind of, you know, I don't know if it's altered my view of Pope Francis exactly, but I will say early in his pontificate when it was clear he was doing something kind of new and his emphasis on mercy and doing things like embracing the disfigured man with the boils Mm. and kind of the notes he hit, I think people really there was a reason people responded to him and they kind of stood up a little straighter and took notice. And I think it, it is, it is because, you know, there is a kind of hunger for mercy and forgiveness in, in, in people. And when you offer it, it people actually are drawn to it. Um, uh, yeah. I'm not saying people are like flocking back to the pews in the Catholic church. Obviously that's not, that's not true. But I, I think there's a, like there was a kind of cynical reading of Francis's papacy where it's like, oh, he's just more liberal. Mm-hmm. He said, who am I to judge about gay people? So the secular press loves him. 
I actually think it was deeper than that, that, that like it wasn't that he was different than Pope Benedict or John Paul II, a kind of liberal to their conservatism. I think it was that he, he was talking about mercy and we all really, really need mercy. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, it's amazing how I think that that note, the note that that strikes in people. But you also saw the amount of uh, you know, pushback and resistance he got even from his own – within the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, people thinking he was you know, totally selling the farm or something like that. And yet what I was experiencing was people outside the fold taking notice for the first time in a long time. They were like, wait, is this really what it's all about? And so I still have a great hope. I mean I, I don't have mm -hmm. huge amounts of hope in the various – systems we have in place right now, but I, I do think that the desire for some form of, I don't know, mercy, absolution, these are the, the terms that just spring to me. I, I don't think it's going away and I think it's only mm -hmm. going to get more more intense. I, I, the, one of the hopes of the book is that is is you know it's not a world negating book. I really love the world, and I have to yeah. issue lengthy disclaimers in every <laughs> every section. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying politics is bad. I'm not saying yeah. as if you know or mm -hmm. or parenting is bad. Of course not. But I think that there's a, a, a way that we can hold these things slightly more more lightly. Mm -hmm. But to the extent that they are driving people basically crazy. Uh -huh. In overwhelming intensity, I think you either bring you to your knees or sort of to the grave, and yeah, the wheels fall off the bus eventually. Well, if if someone is listening to this and they're they're burned out, what sort of maybe you could recapitulate the end of your book a little bit? Like, what's the what's the antidote to the madness? Or maybe antidote isn't the right word, but you know, what's if not the answer, at least your reply? Uh, well, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I no, I, I'm. I'm serious when I say that it would be a misreading of the book to say that the, the important thing that happens is that we reconceive religion in a sort of a gracious way because I think that we've got a history of turning the most gracious religion, I mean, Jesus Christ himself, into a new mechanism of uh, oppression or cruelty. I think the hope is not in grace as a concept. I think it's the, the hope that we have is in God. Mm -hmm. And what that looks like is all, is usually I, – I, I tell a story of a riptide yeah. and it's usually some sort of surrender of control that cannot be engineered. It can be described uh, and I think you see it in the most hopeful people, in the mm -hmm. most this most saintly people we know. There's always some kind of coming to the end of themselves, some sort of su yeah. submission in a way that's not uh, – maybe even a little sort of Flannery O'Connor-esque sort of violence involved mm -hmm. but uh, my hope in in this is is not is not sort of to reconceive but the hope is actually in deliverance mm -hmm. and in god and that maybe that's a way of punting but what else do i have i mean i i, <laughs> I, I talk about walker percy at the end it's like yeah. what else is there I, yeah. I mean i think like religions of grace you can have a, a good therapist can be very a very uh, gracious presence in a person's mm -hmm. life but then you're still paying them mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like uh there there there's all sorts of approximations of this and you see mm -hmm. this when you see something like the Rachel Hollis phenomenon and i was just in airports today and it's just she's just everywhere 
or you see a wonderful, you know, Brene Brown and stuff like that. All of this is sort of people trying to carve out a space for vulnerability and mercy. <laughs> and of course, there's always like price tags attached and programs to do and <laughs> mm-hmm. things to pay for. And they they can be very effective, I think, up to up into a point. At which point, uh, we, there are there are some wounds that are too big and mm-hmm. some uh, hurts and some problems that are too large. Mm-hmm. So I do think that uh, my faith is in – my hope at least is in God. Well, that might be a good place to end. <laughs> How can we top that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I really tried to resist putting forth another – the joke about the title is that it says what to do about it. And I really – one of the things, Matt, you taught me long ago was Michael Oakeshott's incredible – the British philosopher's uh-huh. incredible uh, line about the deadliness of doing uh-huh. and that we – the and the way that we – all of our activity can be frenetic in a way that yeah. I think um, doesn't really – isn't constructive. Yeah. And, uh, I sort of say what to do about it. Doing is kind of the problem. Yeah. Uh, what would it look like if we, um, you know, I don't know if, if 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 we talked about what's been done or we talked about what God can do, yeah. rather than a new program for you and I. So it's a little bit of a bait and switch, I guess. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Uh, but people who've read stuff over the years that I've done know that that's coming. But. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here, Dave. Thank you, Matt. Yep. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, just remember, just remember, it's called Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion, and What to Do About It, or Not Do About It. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff, in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening. <laughs>